Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections about our current public health and moral crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. Today, I'm speaking with John Whittington Franklin about the importance of recognizing Juneteenth as a national holiday. John Whittington Franklin has specialized in the history and culture of Africa and its diaspora for the past 50 years. For more than half his career, John worked for the Smithsonian, organizing seminars and symposia on Senegal, Cape Verde, Bahamas, Washington, D.C., and Mali. Until his retirement in 2019, he served as senior program manager at the new National Museum of African American History and Culture. Thank you, John, so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, John, in this moment where we're all seeing and feeling so much, John, how's your spirit these days? Tell me how your spirit is these days. My spirit is strong because the ancestors are watching all of this and they have prepared us for this day. How have the ancestors prepared us for this day? That's a wonderful thought. Well, they've shared their experience and their knowledge so that we don't come into this moment ignorant. Um, Much information has been kept away from us. Um, This week, uh, in particular, people have been learning about Tulsa, Oklahoma. And whether they're my high school classmates from Chicago or neighbors or people I've worked with for years, one woman with whom I served on the Maryland Commission for African-American History and Culture many years ago. She said, John, from the moment I met you, you talked about Tulsa. But it wasn't until I saw 60 Minutes Hmm. that I said, I got it now. (laughs) Well, okay. That's what we're going to talk to you about today. Your family has a long tradition of scholarship around the Black experience in the United States. Many credit your family, I'm one of them, with having shaped and changed how we view race in this country. Many people from my generation grew up on the historical work of your father, John Hope Franklin. Given that experience, does today's, some call it a national reckoning, feel different from movements of the past? How does this moment feel different, if it does, and if so, why? Well, in so many of the previous outbursts of concern, Um, There have been primarily African-Americans reacting with white allies. What's different this time is that the reaction is nationwide, not just in the big cities, and by no means is it just African-Americans. You see Americans of all types, ages, backgrounds, concerned and awakened. Um, And that gives us more hope. It gives me more hope uh, because it was sort of an internal discussion going on within the black community. Yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, I'm used to seeing this, another one killed. But this is outrage at the national and international level. When the Pope spoke Floyd's name, I said, this is another level. You only hear the Pope speak about people who are in the process of being beatified by name. Have you, do you recall the Pope mentioning someone, anyone else? Uh, you're right. Your point's exactly right. Any Pope. 
Yeah. So um, I went to Europe when I was 10 and then in my teens, and I'd be stopped by the police in London. I'd be stopped by the police at the airport in Paris. I stopped going to Europe because I was tired of being treated as an immigrant until people saw my passport. I said, oh, vous êtes américain. So it's okay if you're American, but they assumed that I was an African immigrant or a Caribbean immigrant and treated me with disrespect. Um, I went to high school in Chicago. You grew up fearful of the Chicago police because Chicago police killed black people. Chicago police would stop my father because they couldn't believe that he owned the Mercedes that he was driving. So he must have stolen it. Now, you know my father, but you see, it didn't matter what age, what attire you are as an African-American. There are many assumptions made of who you are based on nothing but color. So let's talk about Tulsa. Uh, your family has a deep connection with Tulsa. Tulsa, Oklahoma is your grandfather, Buck Colbert Franklin, practiced law there. Tulsa has a profound history. There was a a meaning and importance due to, in part, the 1921 massacre in Tulsa. Tulsa has once again become a target, a topic with President Trump's rally, which was originally scheduled to take place on Juneteenth and has moved now one day. As someone who has deep ties to and deep knowledge of this city's history, what are your reflections on this political moment and decision? Well, first, we need to go back before Tulsa. My family gets to Oklahoma in the 1830s as slaves to Chickasaw Indians. The five so-called civilized tribes were all owners of African-American enslaved people. And when the US Congress passes the American Indian Removal Act of 1830, not only do Indians have to leave Georgia, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Florida, they leave with their slaves too. So we get to Oklahoma in the 1830s and we're black cowboys, we're ranchers. And the whole Eastern half of the state Indian territory is given to native and African-American people. It's considered worthless land. There are areas where nothing will grow. So you have um, farmers, ranchers, growing, their crops, raising their livestock, taking them to market in Colorado and Kansas and Texas. And my grandfather is the first, my grandfather was born in 1879. His father and grandfather have been enslaved. They free themselves. His father fights in the Civil War on the Union side. And my grandfather is the first to go to college in the 1890s. He can't go to the University of Oklahoma because it's for white men only until the 1960s, until the Brown decision. So he goes to Roger Williams University, a Baptist school in Nashville, Tennessee, where he meets my grandmother to be and will meet and they will study with John Hope for whom they will name their second son. He leaves, John Hope, the one for whom my father's name, leaves, it, leaves Roger Williams and goes to Atlanta Baptist, which we now know as Morehouse, another Baptist school. My father grew up CME. Christian Methodist Episcopal. This is important because later when he apprentices for the law and moves to an all black town in Rentersville, he's recruited by black Baptists. And the first day that they moved to Rentersville, this is in the turn of the century, 18, 1910 or so. 
the city fathers, the black city fathers say to him, we didn't see you in church today. And my grandfather said, well, that's because I attended the Methodist service. They said, you're not Baptist? He said, no. <laughs> they said, well, do you attend Baptist institutions? They said, yes, you didn't have to be Baptist to attend Baptist institutions. They said, well, we don't trust Methodists. <laughs> so they refused to give him any legal work. What's the most important thing, relationship between you and your attorney? Trust. So since he was a black Methodist, the black Baptist refused to give him legal work. And that's why he had to move to Tulsa. Now, this worthless land, and indeed, there's some areas that were given the blacks where the trees are so dense, you cannot ride horses through them. This land was rich with petroleum. Now, we're of the generation that know the, the TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies. But can you imagine a black person who discovers that nothing will grow on his land because this is a natural gas, source of natural gas, and petroleum? So when my grandparents are in college, petroleum is discovered, and many of these African-Americans have oil on their land. Now, the people that steal it from them eventually, but there are many African-Americans that become extremely wealthy from the oil on their land. So African-Americans, when they discover that there was petroleum and natural gas on their land, they become wealthy. And where do you go to spend this wealth? You go to the Black section of Tulsa. By then, by, the, by 1910, 1915, Tulsa is the oil capital of the world. And if you go to Tulsa, you'll see that there are skyscrapers built at the beginning of the 20th century into the 20s, Art Deco buildings, lush, extravagant architecture that only oil money could make possible. Well, on the north side of town, north of the railroad tracks, is a black section called Greenwood. And so these African-Americans from across the, the state come to the hotels, the nightclubs, the jewelry stores, the furniture stores, the furriers, the oil leasing offices, the African-American professional dentist's office, doctor's office. My grandfather is coming to join the group of attorneys handling oil leases for African-Americans and American Indians. He studies law by correspondence. He is admitted to the bar in December 1907, a, a month after statehood. So he moves to this bustling city in February 1921. He's left my grandmother, who's a school teacher, and his two youngest children, my father, John Hope, and his sister, Anne Harriet, with their mother in Rentersville. He's establishing himself. He's in a rooming house. He establishes offices. He meets the other attorneys. And Greenwood is a bustling community. When Booker T. Washington visits it, he calls it the Negro Wall Street. That's where the Black Wall Street term comes from. Booker T. Washington recognizing it. Now, there are other hubs of Black business as well. Durham, North Carolina with the insurance companies and Atlanta, also universities and insurance companies and Black businesses. But Tulsa is unique because it's based on land and oil. And that often gets left out of the story. You know, think of Black people owning oil wells anywhere. <laughs> so there are poor whites who do not have such um, accoutrements, appliances, lodgings, homes, to say nothing of professional status. And I have to back up to 1919. We're in, 19, we're in 2020 now, but last year, did you hear any commemorations of the red summer, as we know, the summer of 1919, 100 years ago? Well, when our black soldiers returned from World War I, 
many are lynched in their uniforms the summer of 1919 when there are riots in three dozen American cities. Did you hear anything about this last year? No, we didn't hear anything about that at all. Some cities had their own individual commemorations of the riots, such as Baltimore, which had two. But there was no nationwide observance of the Red Summer. There's a new exhibition that opened at the National Museum of American History, which I hope will reopen, um, called We Return Fighting, which looks at African-Americans in Europe and at the United States between World War I and World War II. It looks at the challenge that our troops faced under white leadership and the challenges that our troops faced under French leadership. Because Woodrow Wilson would not allow African-Americans under the American flag to have weapons. So returning Black soldiers, returning Blacks from World War I, this is what they faced. They faced it uh, across the country. They faced hostility. They faced resentment that they had lived in a place without segregation. And now it was time to bring them back to reality, bring them, bring them back to their place in this nation, which means a place without honor, without um, uh, the, the voting that they had had, the voting rights that they had had following Reconstruction. This is the time of the rise of the Klan, the rise of the hate organization in the United States. So there have been lynchings in 1919 and 1920. There was a lynching of a white man who was involved in labor unions in Tulsa prior to the massacre of 1921. So my grandfather moves to Tulsa alone. And uh, he hears on the morning of May 31st, that there has there's a black man who's been arrested. He's been taken to the county jail. And the newspapers hint rumors that there's going to be a lynching tonight. And so our African-American World War I veterans in Tulsa come to protect uh, Dick Rowland, is his name, from a potential lynching. The authorities do not release Dick Rowland, who's accused of attacking this white woman. And in su instead, the white men are deputized. They break into um, the armories and the gun shops. And they, it's basically a pogrom. They attack the black homes. They loot them of their uh, valuables. For years, my father said, black women would go down the street and see white women wearing the jewelry and just go up to them and snatch it off and said, your husband didn't buy that. He, he took it, he stole it from my home. In the museum exhibition that we have on Tulsa, we have eyewitnesses that talk about seeing white men coming into their homes and taking their mother's piano, taking their father's photograph equipment, stealing the children's piggy banks from the mantle. And then they set these homes on fire. They round up African-American men, women, and children and take them into detention centers, the, the convention center, ballparks, where they keep them for several days. Now, there are also airplanes that drop turpentine bombs from private planes. And even though this is 99 years ago, I still ask, why can't we found out, find out now who owned private planes? This is not the military that dropped turpentine bombs. The people who have planes are the oil men, the white oil men who have to fly across the state to look at different oil fields. No one will tell us who those pilots are. No one will tell us who prepared those turpentine bombs. At the present day, the current mayor, G.T. Bynum, has authorized the investigation of four different possible mass grave sites. It's estimated that 300 people are killed, 
Some are dumped in the river, wash up downstream. There are people who've seen bodies lined up on the sandbars in the Arkansas River. The city buys nine tons of ice while these people are in detention centers. And uh, because of the coronavirus, they were supposed to begin digging in these potential mass grave sites in March, and that's been postponed given to the coronavirus. Can I ask you this a story? Your grandfather, you, you were talking about him. I'd like to hear, there's a story about during the massacre that he, as a lawyer, he, he, was, he wrote down, right while it was happening, wrote some of the story down. And, and that article, I think, is, uh, is now in the, in the museum. Tell, tell us that story, TypeScript he wrote. That's correct. It's a TypeScript he wrote. Or he, uh, as I said, he's an eyewitness to the massacre, the airplanes bombing the community, the telephone lines cut, the fire department not coming to put out the fires, the police not coming to rescue uh, its citizens. It's a part of the city, but clearly was not under the protection of the city. Um, so my grandfather uh, writes later in 1931, this is a document uh, that we have given to the museum about uh, three individuals that he met prior to the massacre. He sees them during the massacre and then he sees them later, just broken people. Uh, it's a World War I veteran, his mother and wife, um, the veteran is talking with my father at a war, my grandfather at a war bond rally in 1918. And then my grandfather sees him again when he moves to Tulsa. And he sees him trying to defend his home against the looters and uh, against the mob. And then he sees him later. He's lost his eyesight. His mother is begging on the corner and his wife is trying to shuttle between her mother-in-law and her husband who's in an insane asylum. So this is the context in which we reach June, May 31st, June 1st of this year, the 99th anniversary of the massacre. And we now learn that President Trump has decided to hold his first rally in Tulsa and initially on Juneteenth until he got incredible blowback for choosing such a day. Now, I need to go and give you some context around Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. So Juneteenth is a holiday that many people in, in America did not learn about in school and largely still don't know or understand. So can you share why Juneteenth is, in fact, a national holiday and should be celebrated that way? What is the importance of that date? There are three emancipations in the United States. President Lincoln signs the Compensated Emancipation Act for the enslaved people in Washington, D.C., April 16, 1862. That frees the 3,000 enslaved people in Washington, D.C. He signs the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, that frees the people, all the people who are in the North, who have not currently, who have not yet been freed, back up. Every state in the United States in the original colonies of the United States had slavery. Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, New York, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania. They have slavery from the 1600s past the American Revolution and the Northern states start freeing their slaves in the 1780s and 1790s. So they can't act like they never had slavery. 
So by the time of the Civil War, it's the Southern states who still have slavery. And those are the last states to free their slaves. Florida frees its slaves May 20th, 1865, two years after they should have been free from the Emancipation Proclamation. And the very last place in the United States to free its slaves is Texas, June 19th, 1865. Many people have freed themselves by this time, but the date is pertained only to Texas. It has been created as a nationwide holiday, but it only commemorates the last slaves freed in Texas. Now let's situate the United States in the hemisphere. Of the 12 and a half million Africans who were brought to the Americas between 1500 and 1870, only 5% come to the United States. May I repeat that? Of the 12 and a half million, only 5% come here. Fewer than 500,000 come to the United States, primarily to New England, the Chesapeake, Charleston, and to New Orleans, fewer than 500,000 between those four areas. A million go to Jamaica, a million go to Haiti, a million go to Cuba, six million go to Brazil. 400,000 go down the west coast of South America. They have to walk across Panama to ships to take them down the west coast of Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. Every country in the hemisphere, including Canada, has slavery. Canada has slavery from 1600 to the British abolished slavery in 1833, 30 years before the United States. So how did Juneteenth become the what became Emancipation Day and how is that a national holiday? And, and can you share why it should be celebrated to teach us all this history, right? All this history is the context you just laid out as a history that is never taught or understood or even acknowledged no. in the U.S. Um, I learned about Juneteenth when I was living in Senegal. I lived in Senegal for eight years. I taught English. That's where the Smithsonian found me and hired me first as a researcher and French language interpreter. And there was a Peace Corps volunteer, an African-American Peace Corps volunteer named Fred Fontenot from Houston, Texas. And as it approached, so we had a small African-American community. We created a choir. We had poetry readings. We bonded, even though we were from different regions, different backgrounds. And in the States, we might not have ever known each other because we were so different in uh, our origins. But Fred said, Juneteenth's coming up, we need to celebrate. So he, so the, the small African-American community got together and we had a potluck and people brought sweet potato pies, and whatever their specialties were. We had vegetarians, we brought vegetarian dishes. And we had, a, we had a celebration in Dakar, Senegal for Juneteenth. That was the first time I had ever heard of Juneteenth. So that's how I learned about Juneteenth. And it wasn't until I came back to the United States that I realized that it had become sort of a cultural holiday around food, around African-American culture. I spoke with someone earlier today who said now the corporate, culture, corporate community has taken this on as a day of reflection to learn about African-American history and culture. Now, I'm up for using any occasion, any excuse to teach this history. So um, most of us are busy in February because People say, oh, it's Black History Month. I have to have a lecture, a talk, a play, a program. And so many people, many organizations generate their income in February. And Juneteenth has never had the same uh, gravitas that the entire month of February has had. It's interesting how, though, right now, you're saying this day is, is, is really a teaching moment for that whole history that hasn't been taught. Now it's been, it's been made, uh, it's 
been given visibility by a presidential decision to have a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa, now moved today after the, after the pushback. And some people who know the history of racial violence uh, know that story of Tulsa, but the combination of Tulsa with the history you just described and Juneteenth as the day for the first presidential rally since COVID happened became national news, a national story, a conversation. So this is drawing attention to that history, which you have just described to us and know so well, but the nation is learning the history because of this uh, likely uh, ignorant decision on the part of a presidential administration. Yes. And uh, well, the entire Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement has made it clear to Americans that there's day-to-day experience of African-Americans that they just didn't realize what it's like being Black in America. Um, I can remember when I moved to Chicago and we lived in Hyde Park, the University of Chicago neighborhood, which was a, a white island in the sea of Black South Chicago, Black South Side. And I would walk, I'm 12, 13 years old, but you know, black black boys are considered adults by the time they're eight. They're viewed as adults. A white child, white male child is not viewed by police as an adult at the age of eight. He's still allowed to be a child. So I can remember walking from our house at 5805 of Blackstone to 57th Street for to get the newspaper for my father or to get uh, food for my mother at the corner grocery store and seeing white women clutch their purse and cross the street as I approached them. I saw the fear on their faces. I can remember that um, when I went away to Stanford and came back to Chicago and went and visited some white Jewish professor friends that lived diagonally across from my parents' house on Blackstone. And, you know, I was coming back from Stanford, telling them about, you know, what I was doing, how I was excited about my first year. And as I left, took my leave of the house, I knew them well enough that I left out the front door myself. And I closed the door behind me and I walked down their front steps to the sidewalk. And a University of Chicago policeman was standing in the building next to them because it was a dormitory. And he said, what are you doing coming out of that house? I said, I'm coming from my friend's house. They said, but we didn't, I didn't see them come to the door. I saw you close the door. I said, well, I've been going there, you know, all of my teenage years. And that's like that. He said, where are you going? He said, where are you going now? I said, I'm going to my house. Pointed to my family's house. And I walked there and he saw me with my keys open the door and go into my house. And I explained to my father what happened. My father got out of bed and walked down there and talked to that policeman. You see, because as a black male, you can be killed at any point, at any time, anywhere. Which is as current as what happened in Atlanta just a few days ago uh, that the nation is now talking about. And in the past, when that would happen, uh, the black community and others would say this happened because this young man uh, was a color of his skin and whites get defensive and all the rest. This time, if you did a referendum in the country, how was that young man killed and why? Uh, because of what's happened in the last month, as you pointed out, more Americans would say what you're just now saying, that he was killed. He wouldn't have been killed if he was a young white man who got intoxicated and fell asleep in his car. 
he wouldn't have been killed if he was a young white man. Now, in Detroit, a long time ago, uh, that's what began to teach me that somehow we were the young black men in my city, and I were born in Detroit, but raised in different countries. And so in the museum where you worked, the door of the museum, this is the African American History and Culture Museum, the door as you open is a quote from your father that reads, we've got to tell the unvarnished truth. You've been shaped by seeking and telling the unvarnished truth. How can this moment help Americans, white Americans, especially I'd say white Christian Americans be motivated by that same pursuit of telling the truth? Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, you have to you have to look at the role of police in our society and you have to look at the history of police first maintaining the segregation system. That was what their their responsibility was to maintain segregation. Often formed for that purpose. And the white and the police force has been all white until relatively recently. And you need to talk to black police about the challenge of even getting to become police. Um at the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation in America Symposium this year, we had a young man who gave the keynote named um, Samuel Sinyangwe, and he has a website called mappingpoliceviolence.org. And what he has done and what Black Lives Matter has made apparent is that we have to look at the union contracts between police unions and the jurisdictions that employ them, whether it's the county, the state, or the city. And those contracts determine if and whether police can be reprimanded, those contracts determine whether their records for bad behavior can be expunged in one, three, or five years. Um, and it looks at the role of someone who's called an arbitrator, who's pointed by the police union, who actually makes a determination, regardless of the behavior of the police person, whether they will lose their job or not. And the assumption is always made, well, the person, the black person was threatening my life and therefore I had to use uh, force. And Samson Yangwe has looked at the prevalence of violence in different cities and see whether it's the prevalence of violence that justifies the use of force against black people. And that's not necessarily a correlation, but that's the justification that's used by the police. On Sunday morning, Sunday before this one, the white police woman officer who shot uh, Tiffany Crutcher's brother in cold blood in Tulsa said that when he reached, she said he could have been reaching for a gun and if he had had a gun, she would have been dead. That's why she had to shoot him. So the justification is always made in self-defense and there's not usually a camera showing it. So it's the police words against the dead person's words. So. We have always privileged the voice of the police and not that of the victim. And that's what's different this time. So that's the now, truth and, and, that you're trying to unvarnish here. And whether this moment of Juneteenth and Tulsa can help unvarnish that truth is really the, the question for us. Right. But Americans realize now that they don't know their history. And so this has to be the opportunity for them to read. Um, and I'm going to suggest three very important books uh, that I would encourage you and your listeners to read. I have to start with my father, of course, From Slavery to Freedom, The History of African Americans, which is in its ninth edition with Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, the chair of the history department at Harvard, 
being my father's co-author, she's working on a 10th edition now because we have to understand the whole sweep from 1400 to now. There are two particularly strong books that look at the 20th century. The first is The Warmth of Other Suns, S-U-N-S, by Isabel Wilkerson, which looks at the reasons for Black migration from the, 18, from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s to places north and west. She traces, and she interviewed over 1,200 people, but she focuses on an African-American woman who leaves Mississippi in the 30s for Chicago, an African-American man who leaves the orange groves of Florida, even though he's college educated, to New York, and then a black doctor from Monroe, Louisiana, who moves to Los Angeles and finds the segregation and racism in Southern California. The book that I've just completed reading is Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman, The Reenslavement of Africans from the African-Americans from the Civil War to World War II. And during this period, as soon as the Northern troops left the South, all of the rights of African-Americans uh, of citizenship voting are stripped away. And any sheriff, any policeman can stop you and claim that you owe them money and send you into the convict labor system, which is a peonage labor system that existed across the South from Florida to Texas. Uh, and people no longer had any monetary value. As enslaved people, there was a value, a monetary cost to you. After slavery, black lives had no value. And they are killed, they are worked to death, they are beaten, they are chained in Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, until the United States government realizes in 1945 that if the Japanese or Germans got, got news, got the information that we were continuing to enslave African-Americans, they would use it as propaganda against us. And that's why the practice stopped, not because of morality. So those are three books I recommend to your readers. From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. Elizabeth Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Suns, she's from Washington and she went to school in one of our public schools where my kids also went to school, John Eaton School. And they, she's she's known as a this local kid who wrote this enormously important book. So there's some summer reading for us on your dad again after MLK was killed. He said, if the house is to be set in order, one cannot begin with the present. He must begin with the past. And you're telling us here that unless we learn our history, unless that history is taught to us, unless we unlearn the false history we've been given from white supremacy, as Jesus would say, we're never going to be free. We're never going to be free. Your dad's saying, unless we begin with the past, and that's what you've been doing your whole life. How can the past indeed uh, teach us our history all over again in order to have a different future? If we don't deal with the past, we're not going to have a different future. And you're saying that so eloquently today. Your family has been telling the truth about the history, which is the most important thing to building a new American future. What What's it like living in that family, dinner conversations at Thanksgiving and all of that? I mean, what, what, living in that family and the history that you tell. But everybody cleared the table after dinner and wrote books. <laughs> So oh, as I great. said, I learned when I was 11, I learned the word emancipation, proclamation, and centennial. You learned all at the same time because dad was writing a book called Emancipation Proclamation. 
to come out on the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation. So he was always writing books. So every evening he cleared, we didn't have his own office until we moved to Chicago. So the dining room table, the kitchen table was his writing space. Oh my. So, um, so you grow up in a household where the phone will ring and you answer the, you taught how to answer the phone. Good, good afternoon, Franklin resident. I said, this is Thurgood. Can I speak to John Hope, please? <laughs> Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Because Thurgood called my father in D.C. when my father was teaching at Howard in the uh, mid-50s, late, late 40s to mid-50s, and said, well, in addition to your job at Howard, you need to come and work for me at the Legal Defense Fund on the weekends because I need you to do historical research on these cases. In the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So dad would go to New York and work for Thurgood on the weekends and then come back and teach <laughs> in New York. Teach, teach in Washington. What a family. Well, your family has blessed this kind of country, my friend. We're just thankful for your family. As Americans, we all need to know each other's history as well as our own. To learn more about John and his family, look up the autobiography of his grandfather entitled My Life and an Era, which John edited along with his father. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of a Nation. Thank you, my friend. This is wonderful. Thank you.